Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Good to be with you guys. Uh, if you've uh, been with us for the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll know that we've uh, been going through the letter of James as a young adult community. And so uh, we chose to go through this letter because James offers guidance and wisdom about how to practically follow Jesus in a world that says pursuit of Jesus is worthless. And now the reason that James, and just by way of reminder, the reason James had to write this letter was because the disciples of Jesus uh, were beginning to reintroduce the, uh, the ways of the world, the, the life that they had given up to follow Jesus, but now they'd begun to reintroduce uh, this way of living back into the life of the church. And he just, he's just like, listen, I, I need to write this letter to y'all because I just need to remind you that God has set you apart. The ways of the world are not the ways you are meant to live in anymore. So he just wants disciples of Jesus to know there's only one way to follow from here on out as a follower of Jesus, and it's the way of Jesus. So as we continue our sermon series this fall on the letter of James, the question we're seeking to answer is the one right here. How then should we live? So now that we're all cut up, let me, let me just ask you another question. And you don't have to raise your hand if you don't feel comfortable, but it's fine. Uh, does anyone here feel like they've hit a wall in their faith with Jesus? Does anyone feel like you've plateaued in your faith journey? You know, perhaps some of you can recall when you first came to faith and feeling like, man, I was on, on fire for Jesus and, and all you could talk about was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And all you could think about was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And, and you bought a new study Bible and, and you probably put on Instagram and, and not because you wanted people to think you were spiritual, but because you wanted everybody to know that you follow Jesus. And, you, and you're like, man, I want everyone to know I love Jesus and, and, and that Jesus loves me. And growing up, uh, those people were called Jesus freaks. And that's fine. That's great. I, I don't think you're a freak if that's who you are, but I think it's great. Now, maybe that wasn't you because that actually wasn't my story. I, I, I came to faith in college and, and, and while there was a genuine curiosity on my behalf about what a, a relationship with Jesus could look like, that, that, that initial fire in me to pursue Jesus just, just wasn't there. That, that came over time. But what I did notice is that the stories I read about in the Bible, these ordinary people, because <laughs> remember, this, the, all the people in the scriptures outside of Jesus are really just ordinary human beings, nothing special about them. The most important thing about them or the most special thing about them is that God used them, but that was about it. They were ordinary people. And so I would read these stories and, and I'd, I'd be impressed and, and blown away and be like, oh my gosh, I, I mean, I kind of want to be like Moses and split the seas. Like, how cool would it be? I grew up in New York City. I was like, man, would it be cool? Like, have you ever seen like Bruce Almighty where he just kind of like just splits or, or, or he's, he's in the bathtub and he just splits the waters in half? I feel like the movie's a little heretical, but it's fine. But anyway, I was like, man, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be cool? Like, man, like, couldn't I be like Peter and, and walk on water? Or, you know, or just something more simple of just like having faith in Jesus or, 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 like, or like believing him even when nothing else made sense or you know I read the book of Acts and I read about Paul and he's just like man listen hey guys we, we shouldn't we shouldn't walk the seas we we shouldn't do this and he's like but I'm gonna trust Jesus and like hey you guys don't have to worry none of y'all are gonna die because Jesus told me uh, that uh, I'm not gonna die here so you're not gonna die and I'm like I want to have that kind of faith and so I would read these stories and I'm like man all these stories from Genesis to Revelation my life don't look like this 
And so I, I would just feel like my faith felt kind of lifeless and, and, and honestly, just kind of boring compared to these stories. So tonight, what we're gonna talk about is, is how we can turn or how God turns a boring and lifeless faith and transforms it into a living and dynamic faith. And so for you note takers, this message is called the cure for a boring faith. So I just wanna point out, okay, just a simple reality that if we're not attentive to the health of our faith, it is really easy for us as followers of Jesus to have our faith become boring and lifeless. And part of that reason is because there seems to be a confusion in the church about what faith is. Like, like what is faith? Is, is faith a belief? Is faith an action? Is it a worldview? Is it a mental pattern? Is it a person? Like what exactly is faith? Now, the way that we talk about faith in the Western church is simply this one thing. Faith is believing in Jesus. And what they really mean by that simply is like, yeah, I believe God exists. Now, that's good. I'm glad if you believe that Jesus exists, that's a good thing. But, but if that is the culmination of your faith, if that is the sum total of what it means to believe in Jesus, it's just that I believe that he exists, that's actually quite problematic. Because if, if following Jesus is only believing that he exists, then there is no expectation for your life to be any different than when you weren't following Jesus before. Right? So it's like, okay, yeah, I believe Jesus and that's it. Nothing else has to change about my life. But the gospel says that faith in Jesus results in a transformed life. But instead we have droves of, of confessing all these people who say they follow Jesus, but none of their lives actually reflect it. And that reality serves as a repellent to people who are curious about the Christian faith. And so what I've seen happen in the church is that we've tried to overcorrect this reality. So they say, okay, listen, faith is it's not really about belief, it's about action. So as a result, the church today is attached to so many uh, social justice movements and political campaigns because we don't want to be seen and labeled as people who just say, hey, I'm sending you my prayers when there's a social crisis that occurs in our nation. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with, with wanting justice in, in our world. There's nothing wrong with our faith impacting our political stance. But what I'm saying is that when faith in Jesus becomes only about external actions, our hearts actually grow colder because we've become busier doing things for God rather than being with God. And what James says in the passage tonight is that when Christians separate their belief in God from their actions for God, their faith actually becomes lifeless and boring. But a lifeless and boring faith is not the faith that Jesus taught the early church. You see, Jesus, uh, James was the pastor of the, of the, of the church in Jerusalem because uh, Jerusalem would have been the hub of the early Christian world. And, and there he would have gotten glimpses and, uh, uh, and stories, uh, uh, multiple stories of people who lived radical, bold, excitable lives, uh, who, who had deep trust and faith in Jesus. There's this scene in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter six and seven. Listen, if you ever want just, just to feel like what, like, man, what, how did people follow Jesus in the beginning? This is what it looked like. And so there were people like Stephen. He was actually the first uh, deacon in the church. And so when the church selected Stephen to serve in the community, Acts chapter six, verse five says that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. 
But as the, out of all the people they selected to help serve the community, Stephen's the only person that was relegated that description. That he was a man full of faith, a man full of the spirit. But when you read about his life, about what his faith in Jesus actually produced, it was a faith that led him to do great wonders and signs among the people. It was a faith that, that led him to do ordinary yet necessary works like feeding the orphans and the widows. It was a faith that led him to preach the gospel to the people who put him on trial, even though it, would, it might cost him his life. And it did because Stephen was the first person to die for the Christian faith. For Stephen, his faith was belief in Jesus met by his acts for Jesus. It was a big and bold and living and active faith. And so I wonder how can we as a community, as a young adult community, how can we have a faith like that? A faith in Jesus that is living and dynamic. How can we have that? Let's read tonight's text again. Just read with me 14 through 17. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So in verse 14, James makes this rather pointed question to his readers, right? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? This is his attempt to probe the quality of their faith. In some ways, he's, he's really asking them to reflect about what they believe to be true about Jesus, about what they believe life with Jesus looks like. He says, what good is it? And by good, he means of what benefit? What benefit is it if someone says they have faith, but does not have works? They say they have faith, but there's nothing that is evident of that. So there are two words that we have to define before we continue on because these two words will continually pop up in tonight's text. And these words are faith and works. Now, uh, the Greek word for faith is this word pistis. Can you say that with me? Pistis. Great. It means to have a deep trust in something or someone. Now the Greek word for, for work is ergon. Can you say that? Ergon. ergon. Great. So in context, that word means a work that corresponds to, a, to their faith in God. So here, let's, let's put all of these, these, these things in context together. So when he puts the sentence together, this is how he, James wants his readers to understand this. What benefit is there to someone who says they have deep trust in Jesus, but they have zero signs in their life that they actually follow Jesus? And so really what the question is getting at is, well, not even the question, the statement he's getting at is that our works reveal our trust in Jesus. Now for James's audience, they would have heard that and be like, that's not me. That's them. They suck us. They're useless. Let's get rid of them. We don't need those people in the church. But the irony is that James is talking about them. Like James is using this illustration in, in verse 15 and 16 that says they're not trusting in Jesus. He says, listen, imagine someone who's in need, literally naked and just hungry, 
and they come before you and they say, can you help me? And your response to them is, God bless you. I hope someone else can help. It's ridiculous, right? Like, like you would try to help them. Like if you, if you see someone asking in that much need, you would help them. And so you read this, you're like, man, these Jewish Christians just, they suck, man. They're not real. They don't love Jesus. You know what? I might have a little faith, but they have no faith. But you got to remember, James's audience, his readers are dirt poor, <laughs> They have been oppressed and afflicted by injustice. Like they don't have two nickels to rub together or two shekels. They're not sure when the next meal will come because they're not getting paid their fair wages of work. And, and so James is not writing this to people who are rich and have lots of resources to offer. He's writing to people who are in desperate need themselves. So, so imagine this, you're in need, someone's in need comes and says, hey, can you help me? What would, what, would, what would you do? You might be like, God bless you. I need some help too. I hope someone helps you and I hope someone helps me. Have a nice day. But that isn't James's response. He doesn't say, oh, I get it. Man, that sucks. It's really hard. Instead, what he says is your lack of willingness to help those in need shows that you don't trust Jesus, that you don't have faith. Seems pretty harsh. But what he's saying is that instead of trusting Jesus with your money and your resources, you're unwilling to part with it. And, and therefore you're not willing to help those who Jesus demands you and commands you to love. Here's what you need to know about trust and faith. There is nothing that will stifle a person's faith in Jesus more than a lack of trust in Jesus. Because it means that your faith is in something that isn't Jesus. It's like having a cup full of water, right? And you begin to pour that water into other buckets and you look at your cup and be like, where'd all the water go? Why is my cup so empty? And we treat that with our, with our faith. We, we begin to deposit our faith in different people and different things. And we, and we look at our own faith in Jesus and be like, we're looking pretty low on my faith today. See, it's because you're depositing faith in someone outside of Jesus, the one you claim to have faith in. And see, this is why James challenges his reader in this way. He could have just said this simple thing. He could have said, listen, y'all don't have much faith. Your faith is lifeless. Do better. Instead, James just says, he gets at the heart of our boring faith. So you have a boring faith because you lack trust in Jesus. You see, following Jesus, Jesus calls his way. The way that we're, the, 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 the pathway of Jesus is called the narrow path. At least he calls it that. It is not a path of comfort or ease, but, but it is the path that Jesus calls his followers to take. And, and often following Jesus down this narrow path, you see what happens is when we take this narrow path, it will put us at odds with human wisdom. Sometimes following Jesus looks like the craziest things. So, so when we are met with difficulty and crazy things that God tells us to go and do, it's easy for doubt and fear to eat away at our trust in him. But there is something special that occurs when you continually trust in Jesus, despite the difficulty and the fears. 
You begin to learn how to trust Jesus even when he seems absent. You see, trust is the soil in which the seeds of faith will blossom. So let me ask you tonight, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him? And if you're curious on how, to, how, how, how do I determine that? How do I answer that question? Just ask yourself this. When the difficulties of life come, who do you run to? Who do you trust? Who do you depend on? And if your answer to that question is anything other than Jesus, then you have misplaced your faith. You've misplaced your faith. And so James continues his letter by presenting another hypothetical scenario. Read with me verse 18. He says, but someone will say, which is a hypothetical person. This hypothetical person says, you have faith and I have works. And James responds, show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. See what this imaginary opponent is arguing for is the separation between faith and works. They're saying, listen, Sorry, James, I don't gotta do nothing. All I need to be a follower of Jesus is belief. Now, I wanna be careful about this because James talks about faith in a very unique way. And, 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 it's, and it's very different than some of the other New Testament authors talks about faith. And, and one of these other people that talk about faith is the apostle Paul. And he writes in Ephesians that the only thing that you need to, to have salvation is faith in the works of Jesus for you. That's it. Now, James, in his use of faith here, isn't arguing against that. He's not saying that you need faith plus works to be saved by Jesus. Not at all. What he's saying is that belief in Jesus has to go beyond just thoughts about Jesus. This is how he shows it in verse 19. He says this, you believe, talking about the Jewish Christians, you believe that God is one. You do well. Good job. Even the demons believe and shudder. Oh, this is crazy. Like when I was writing this, I was like, dang, conviction. It's painfully brilliant. This is what he does, right? He says, listen, you claim to believe in Jesus, right? We can all agree that's what he's saying. Easy, cool. You say you believe in Jesus. Who else believes in Jesus? Demons, crazy thought, but they do. So now we, we come from a, a culture and we come from a Western culture and an evangelical Western culture that says all that faith is belief in Jesus. If that is true, Guess who gets to come to the family reunion? The demons. I read the New Testament and Jesus was like, nah, bro, demons gotta go. Paul's out here casting out demons. Peter's out here casting out demons. They were like, demons don't get to come to the family reunion. We get rid of demons. So, so how, does that, how does that make sense? If, if, if belief is all it takes, then the demons come, but we don't want demons to come. So which one is it? And he even goes in a level deeper. He says, look, the demons believe and what do they do? They shudder, right? They tremble in fear is what it means. That there's an action that occurs, right? So he's saying this, you say you love Jesus and you don't wanna do nothing for him. The demons hate Jesus 
and they do one thing and they shudder. What he's saying to the person who's unwilling to live and walk in the ways of God is that your faith is worse than that of a demon. That demons have a greater faith in Jesus than you do because at least they're willing to do something about their faith and you're not willing to do a single thing. And what this illustration teaches us is that there is no middle ground when it comes to life with Jesus. When it comes to life and faith in Jesus, there isn't this kind of gray area where it says, I get to do my way and I get to do some of his way. And it depends on what day it is, Monday through Sunday, I'll determine on how I feel. He says, no, there is no such thing as a living faith in Jesus that makes us indifferent towards him. And sometimes as a young adult community or even just as a Christian people or just as people, we try to get around that reality and we say, listen, but I have correct theology. I know lots about Jesus. And listen, I've known plenty of people that have a deep understanding of the scriptures, but their life reflects nothing of Jesus. And if that is the reality, he, James says, your faith is boring and lifeless. It is dead. That faith is more than just believing the right things and doing the right things. See, our faith in Jesus must go beyond just having a, a Bible verse in our Instagram bio. Sure, you can have, yeah, Joshua 1.9, for me and my house, we will follow the ways of the Lord, but do you? Now, as you're hearing me saying this, you might be like, I just gotta do, man, I gotta do more, man. I, gotta, I just gotta work more for Jesus. I just gotta do, I gotta work harder. No, that's, that's not what James is advocating for. Yeah, he wants your life to be reflective of your faith in Jesus. But what he's saying is, man, Jesus wants your life to be radically transformed. And the only way for your life to be different than what it was is if you walk in my ways. And so he's, see, when Jesus brought you from death to life, it wasn't just so that you can claim the status of Christian. It was so that you would go from death to life in all of your ways. And so any ways that are not of his, he wants you to walk away from. And so when we say, listen, all I need is belief in Jesus and I don't wanna walk in any of his ways, what it's, what it's simply is like, is like being on a boat that's sinking and being like, well, I believe this boat will get me to the end but you're not, you're just sinking. You're just sinking. And we wonder, why is my faith so sucky? Why does my life feel so bland with Jesus? Why is my faith plateauing? It's because you're just sitting in nothingness. As Jesus calls out and says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. He continues in this letter. He finishes with this. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? I always love it when people just call me an idiot. <laughs> Especially when it's James, because I get to say it. <laughs> but, it's, but I got to say it to myself first. So Caesar, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Up to this point, I don't. I'm like, man, you've proven your point. I'm ready to close my Bible and call it a day. Thank you. But he goes, nope, I got five more verses. I got, I got a whole two, three paragraphs for you. He goes, 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So he, he keeps reiterating this point. Listen, you cannot separate faith and works from each other. He says, you see that faith was active, meaning that it, was, it is in co-laboring with, so faith and works co-labor with each other. And that faith is completed, meaning it's perfected by his works. So what he's saying is like, if you still are not convinced that you should do the works of Jesus, he's saying, listen, your faith your belief in him will be completed by your works of faith. And, and he uses these two people, Abraham and Rahab. And these are two examples of people who trusted God. This, this is what it says. Just, just read verse 21 with me and verse 25 with me. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And he says in verse 25, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, if we don't know their stories, we're just like, okay, cool. Some Old Testament peeps, great. So I'm gonna just tell you a little backstory of each person and then we'll see what point he's trying to make. He says, do you remember Abraham? Had many sons, had many sons, had father Abraham, you know that song? Cool. So... Uh, my brain. Anyway, Abraham, he, he was called thousands of miles from one hometown to another, all based on God saying, hey, you gotta go to this new place. And, and God promises him, he said, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm gonna give you a great legacy. So I'm gonna, you're gonna have so many descendants. It's like the sand in the desert, which if you don't know, is a lot. But then he says, it's only gonna happen if you can have a child, that's the only way for you to have a legacy. And that time's like, it just, you have to have a child. But his wife, Sarah, was unable to conceive a child. Unable. So guess what? God says, um, you're gonna be a, a, a father of many nations, but you can't have a kid. Do you see how that doesn't make sense? Doesn't make sense. So he says, but I promise you, you're gonna have it. I'm gonna promise you, you're gonna have a kid. And, and so Abraham's like close to hundred and God visits him. He goes, hey, hey, you're gonna have a son. And then they laugh because Sarah's like almost 100 and that ain't a good time to have a kid. And so they have the kid. And then just a few chapters later, this, this, this just always baffles me. God just baffles me all the time. This is what he says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, in chapter 22 of Genesis, and, and Abraham's like, I'm here. And God says, hey, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Just, just picture this for a moment. Man, you finally got the promise that God gave to you. And you're like, yes, I got my kid. I'm gonna be a father of many nations. He says, man, you see your son, the one that you love? I want you to take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So I got to paint it out for you. He's saying, I want you to kill your son. I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to give up the promise that I told you I would have for you. 
At that point, that's when me and Jesus are about to throw hands. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is my son. But what does Abraham do? On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar and he takes his son. And then he gets wood and a donkey. He says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, because you know, his kid's not an idiot. He's seen burnt offerings. We got the knife for the murder. <laughs> we got the burnt wood. We got the wood for the fire. We, we, okay, hey, hey, dad, where is the sacrifice? And I love Abraham's response. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both of them together went up the mountain. That's Abraham's story. A story of trust, a story of faith. And then James goes to Rahab. Now Rahab's even a crazier story because at least Abraham heard from God. Abraham had a relationship with God. Abraham was a patriarch. Abraham was in relationship with God. But Rahab, Rahab's completely different. Rahab was a, was a woman who was a prostitute in, a, in an enemy nation of Israel. Israel at this point is conquering the lands and, and Joshua, uh, the predecessor, the, 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 the prodigy of Moses is sending out uh, spies to spy on the land. And so Rahab, I don't know why she does this. Like she, she is an enemy, she's an enemy, but these spies end up coming into her inn because she's an innkeeper and she protects them even though she should rat them out. And so the king sends out a decree and says, listen, you got to tell me where these spies are. And she doesn't rat them out. Do you know what would happen if she were found out? She would be killed. But she defies that. This woman who's not a follower of God, has no relationship with God, has zero clue about God, at least in our minds, why would she choose to protect these two men who are enemies? Look what she says. She goes, before the men lay down, she came up to the, to the roof. She had hidden them on the roof apparently and said to the men, this was her reason as to why she protected them. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, talking about the story in Exodus with Moses, before you when you came out of Egypt and what, did you, uh, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit in any, left in any of the man because of you for the Lord, your God. He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And so what both of these stories are saying, see for Rahab, she didn't have a relationship with God, but all that she, all that she needed to hear was that God was a God who followed through. He said, listen, I have only heard that the God that you serve follows through on his promises, that he is powerful and he is great and he is amazing. And just hearing it was enough for her to trust. And for Abraham, 
All he needed to know, what he said was, God will provide. I don't know how he's gonna do it. He's telling me to sacrifice my son. I'm gonna be obedient. I don't know how he's gonna fulfill his promise to me because if my son dies, the promise goes away. But what he says to his son Isaac is, I will trust God because he will provide. Rahab says, I will trust God because he is a God who fulfills his promise. He is a way maker. And so what James is saying is the reason why our faith can often dwindle and die is because we don't remember and don't place our trust in the God who fulfills his promises. That he is a God that follows through. And some of you are here tonight with weak and dwindling faiths. And my only encouragement in all of that is to you tonight is to say, God will come through. God will follow through on his promises to you. Every blessing that he's declared over you, everything that he said that he will care for you and watch over you in the same way that he provided for for Abraham, in the same way that he protected Rahab. The crazy story about Rahab was that she wasn't even in the lineage to be a person of God. But when you read the, the ancestry of Jesus, Rahab the prostitute becomes part of the family of God because she trusted Jesus, because she trusted God. And all that James is saying is, listen, what anchors your faith? What takes it from a boring and dull and lifeless faith is learning to trust in the God who follows through. Your faith will blossom when you trust in God who is faithful. And this is the way that Jesus lived. There was no one else who lived a greater sense of faith in the Father than Jesus. Jesus, right before he dies, he he says in the gospel of Luke, he says he was in anguish and in sorrow. And he's being honest with the Lord. He's like, Lord, I'm in pain. I know I'm about to die. I know I'm about to be crucified. I know things are gonna go south from here at this point. If you are willing, would you take this cup from me and pour it on somebody else? And then he ends it with this. Father, your will be done. Father, your will be done. How does Jesus, knowing he's about to experience the most excruciating thing that he's ever experienced, death on the cross, crucified, bearing the weight of our sin and suffering on his shoulders, and he has in his humanity the trust in God to say, Father, your will be done. It's because he knew the Father was faithful and good. And that is good news. Do you know why? Because we read stories about Moses. We read stories about Abraham. We read stories like Rahab and we go, I don't have what it takes all the time to have that kind of faith. There are often times in my life where my faith is weak, where doubt and worries scream louder than my trust in Jesus. That says I don't want to obey God because that's the harder path. That's the narrow path and I don't want to follow that. And Jesus says, it's okay. Your access to God's goodness, your ability to enjoy the faithfulness of God is not contingent on your great faith. It's contingent on the great faith of Jesus for you. His great faithfulness for you. And so if you are here tonight and your faith feels small, 
and you feel like it is dwindling away. Jesus says, take on my faith because it's sufficient for you. You'll have closeness and access to the Father because of my faith, not because of yours. Do not let yourself be caught up in shame and guilt because you're like, man, I don't know how to believe in Jesus more. It's not about that. See, the key to a living and vibrant faith is truthfully Jesus' faithfulness for us. The reality is that many of you here tonight, especially as young adults, you are being asked by God for really difficult realities. Like we're, we're only a couple years apart. I recognize that. I, I, I mean, I, I sometimes look at the age and the, the youngest young adult here is probably like 19. So there's about 10 years difference between us. But I, I, I know and I hear the stories of what it is to be a college student or a, an early, a young adult in their early 20s and the world that we live in. You're like, man, I, I just, mm, it's hard to trust that Jesus will care for me. I've, I've had conversations with some of you where you're like, I, I think God is calling me to a whole different city. A whole different city. I don't know if I, if I should go. I don't know if, I, if, 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 I'm, if, it's my, you know, if it's the tacos that I had earlier or if this is the voice of Jesus, but I'm scared. I'm scared to follow Jesus in this path. I'm scared to, to, to go in this path that he's called me to. And what he's saying is, man, when you know that God is faithful to you in every circumstance, in every season, there is nothing that you cannot do for Jesus that you'll be able to surrender your life just like Abraham, that you'll be able to surrender comfort and ease like Abraham, that you'd be able to even risk everything, even your life like Rahab, because you know God is faithful. Because God will follow through. So even if you're not, if you're here and you're not like, I mean, my week doesn't feel small. I feel pretty great, but God is calling me into some really difficult things that I don't know if I can trust him in. God is saying, I will follow through. And because I follow through, I'm, I'm, all I'm asking you is to trust me. Allow me to show up in your life and obey the path because I'm gonna keep showing up for you. Let's pray. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you wanna hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.